0: Let us now turn to the book of Malachi, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi chapter 3, and we'll read the first 12 verses. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver, that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord, as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and orphans, and against those who turn away an alien because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. Yet from the days of your fathers you have gone astray gone away from my ordinances, and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you said, In what way shall we return? Will a man rob God? Yet you have robbed me. But you say, In what way have we robbed you? In tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me, even this whole nation. Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. And I will rebuke the devourer for your sakes so that he will not destroy the fruit of your ground, nor shall the vine fail to bear fruit for you in the field, says the Lord of hosts. And all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a delightful land says the Lord of hosts. In connection with our scripture reading again, we read Article 1 of the Belgic Confession concerning the only God. We all believe in our hearts and confess with our mouths that there is a single and simple spiritual being whom we call God, eternal, incomprehensible, invisible, unchangeable, infinite, almighty, completely wise, just, and good, and the overflowing source of all good. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've come this evening to that revelation of God as one who is unchangeable. Uh, The previous translation of the Belgic Confession that we may be familiar with uses a different word that means the same thing, and that is that God is immutable. Both of those words uh, end with the letters A-B-L-E, a bull. And that's important because it uh, it means more than the fact that God does not change, that he will not change, but uh, it involves the wonderful truth that God cannot change. It would be contrary to his own being and nature if God were to change. In other words, it's impossible that God should change. I am the Lord. We heard in verse six of Malachi three, I do not change. Therefore you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. And uh this passage that speaks of our unchangeable God uh, is in a context that greatly comforts us. And uh, that says something about the way we confess the being of God. And in a way that that reflects the nature of scripture as inspired revelation from God to us. You know, if men were going to compose a book on religion, uh, they would probably present a very orderly, systematic uh, description of God in which they would enumerate his attributes and then spell them out and explain them. But the Bible doesn't come to us in that form, does it? When it comes to studying the character, the attributes of God, we turn to... Uh, We turn to history, we turn to Psalms, we turn to uh, prophecy, we turn to epistles, because God reveals himself in a progressive way in the context of his historical redemptive working in relationship to his people. And when you consider the fact that of the many books of scripture, they all testify to the same God, and they all proclaim the same attributes of God in different ways, but never with any uh, disharmony or contradiction. We have another testimony to the fact that the Bible is an altogether unique heavenly book. It is divine in its origin. It is the word of God. It is the revelation of God to us so that we might put our trust in God, that we might worship him, that we might love and serve him, as our God, as he is revealed to us. And he is our God and Father for the sake of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And that alone makes it uh, possible for us to truly know him and to love and serve him. Our God is unchangeable. That's a very short, concise theme that we're considering from uh, the scriptures this evening. Uh, we We want to begin by considering the fact that Uh, This is an absolutely uh, unique, incommunicable attribute of God. In other words, it is a feature of God's being that reflects his transcendent glory, which he does not share with any created thing or being. God is unchangeable, unlike all others. Even the way that's confessed in our text, or that's revealed in our text, suggests a contrast For I am the Lord, and even that name, that covenant-keeping name of God, who is the I am, the self-existent, faithful God. I am the Lord. I do not change. Therefore, you are not consumed. And the suggestion is, if God were anyone else but God, the sins and the waywardness of God's people would provoke him such that they would be destroyed in judgment. But God doesn't change. God doesn't change in his covenant purposes and grace towards his people. And we'll consider that further. But we begin with the, the fact that God is unchangeable unlike all others. God is unchangeable in contrast with, with the other most constant things that we might think about in the universe, in the world. I'm thinking of... uh the ways in which the Bible itself describes the the hills as the ancient or everlasting hills, or the way it describes uh, the mountains in uh, Psalm 46, for example, where we read, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, even though the earth be removed. And though the mountains be carried into the midst of the sea, though its waters roar and be troubled, though the mountains shake with its swelling. Mountains are uh, perceived as some of the most enduring, stable, immovable things in this created world. And yet they are sometimes shaken. But in contrast to these most stable things uh, of this creation, God does not change. The heavens themselves Uh, consider, uh, Psalm 102, where we read of old, you have laid the foundation of the earth and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them and they will be changed, but you are the same and your years will have no end. The children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you. We'll return to this later on and to see the connection between God's unchangeable being and the comfort that that affords us. In the book of James, God is uh, described as the father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. He is the father of lights, those created lights, like the the sun and the stars and the moon, from our uh perspective, the lights of of nature, which are subject to uh change, they go through phases, even the stars go through phases there is a, a life of a star, they experience eclipse or shadows, they cast shadows, but they sometimes are subject to the shadows, but the one who created light, the one who is light never varies. God doesn't change in contrast with what we perceive as the most constant unchanging things of this world, but God doesn't change in contrast with ourselves and our experience of change. Much of the changes that we experience really confront us with our weakness and our frailty and our sin change and decay and all around i see oh thou who changes not abide with me we sing sometimes change rocks the young lives of of uh children as they experience even instability in their families sometimes change is experienced in a heartbreaking way where relationships that Uh, were once solid and enduring, or at least they were thought to be so, appear to be tenuous and unreliable. And great changes take place. Sometimes natural affection grows cold and with it, the security and the stability of commitment. Come, change comes, uh, through aging with its, with its breakdowns. When, when we were in Michigan, uh, this, this month earlier in this month, uh, we attended the sixty-third annual Cliffman reunion. Um my mom's married name was Cliffman, and she was one of eleven siblings. And beginning the actually was the year of my birth, apparently, they started to have these reunions. They would get together for a picnic on a Saturday. And uh I, I watched a video that was probably made a movie. Somebody took a movie camera to one of these reunions. And my guess that it was probably uh, sometime in the late 60s or the early 70s. And it was interesting to watch this video and to see all these cousins that looked very familiar to me. In fact, when I think of them, I think of them as they appeared when they were children or teenagers, and uh my mom's generation were in the midst of life, in the midst of work and busyness and bearing children, and it's very fascinating to see them in their activities playing ball and um talking together around picnic tables. There was a big group of them, right? Pretty large family. And uh was privileged to attend the sixty third annual reunion uh this past month and, uh, my one aunt Elmer is the only surviving sibling of 11 and many of them died rather young, comparatively young, but she's the only one, uh, that uh, remains of that family. There are some in-laws. I think there are two, uh, men that are surviving. One of them is 90 years old and I talked to him, uh, briefly because I was uh, quite close to his family because often the family reunion was the time in which, uh, some of the young kids would be traded off and they'd go spend, uh, a week with their cousins. And I would often spend a week with my, my, my cousin on the farm. And, uh, my uncle was, uh, his father and I talked to him. He didn't know me. He was 90 years old, suffering from Alzheimer's or dementia. He didn't know who I was. And so it's kind of a humbling thing to, uh, see the changes that have taken place. Yeah, there were still children there, thankfully, and it was a fun time, but those children were all the great-grandchildren of that first generation. And there were some cousins there, and once I figured out who they were and finally recognized them, uh there was some kind of a connection there yet. But it was that kind of experience that you perhaps some at some point have felt, uh the great changes that take place in people's lives over the years. And they seem like a very few years looking back on them. Great changes take place. Sometimes tremendous changes take place even in the, the lives of of young people, young adults who experience very serious changes in their health, life-changing experiences. And all these things are are sobering realities that confront us with the fact that indeed our our lives are like like flowers that grow in beauty, but soon they fade and die. Our lives are like grass in contrast to God. Perhaps more sobering is the fact that changes take place in people's views and character. In verse 4 of our scripture reading, there is a prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ in which the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. It recalls time when there was a a spiritual vitality in the worship of Israel. And those were days past. They're referenced here. Some of you may have experienced with great sadness what has transpired over sometimes perhaps relatively few years in the thinking and lifestyle of loved ones with whom you thought you had so much in common at one time. But they've moved away from uh, the old paths of God's word or people that at one time showed great promise in the things of the Lord, they make an about face. They seem to turn away from it, either gradually or sometimes suddenly. Some turn to the practice of sins that once uh, would have shocked them to think that they would ever live in such a manner. You may, may recall the incident in, in the book of Kings where uh, Elisha informed the, the commander of the Assyrians, uh, Hazel, that he would actually take the life of Ben-Hadad, his king. And he was shocked and appalled by the thought. Am I a dog that I should do such a thing? Oh yeah, he ended up doing it when he had the opportunity to gain power. He did what one at one time shocked and horrified him. At least it sounded that way. Now we'll consider that there are also great changes, good changes that take place in the lives of people. By God's unchanging grace, that's the explanation. But of ourselves, we change. Changes take place among the true children of God. There are many ups and downs in our lives. Many stumblings and often repeated uh, repentings. It's convicting and sometimes a bit frustrating to live with the fluctuations and the, the fickleness of our lives. Feelings of a devotion that seem to be so... Uh, so deep, seem to fade, seem to come and go. Resolutions that we make with uh, such determination sometimes dissipate over time. Now, God graciously renews and revives us, but were it not for his work, there would only be decline. God also keeps us by his power through faith. Only God is a rock. Only God is absolutely constant. Only God is perfectly reliable and always the same. God is not a man. Such language is actually used in, in the book of, uh, numbers with respect to the prophecy of, of Balaam, who despite himself was constrained to, to speak, uh, the truth of God's blessing upon his people. And, uh, says in verse 21 of chapter 23 of numbers he has not observed iniquity in Jacob nor has he seen wickedness in Israel the lord his god is with him and the shout of a king is among them god brings them out of egypt he has strength uh, like a like a wild ox god is not a man that he should lie nor a son of man that he should repent he has not said or he ha- has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not make it good? Those are rhetorical questions, aren't they? Of course, the answer is no. God will never fail to keep His word. God is not like a man. God does not change. God does not change, unlike all others. Secondly, God does not change. He is unchangeable in every way. Our text uh makes this absolute statement it's an unqualified declaration of uh of what god is like i am the lord i do not change in the westminster shorter uh, catechism in its uh confession of god's being in in question and answer 4 we read what is god and the answer is god is a spirit infinite eternal and unchangeable. And then it goes on to say, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. In other words, his infinity and his eternity and his unchangeableness describes these other attributes of God. God is unchangeable in his being. God is unchangeable in his wisdom, his power, holiness, Justice, goodness, and truth. Now, the fact is that, uh, this teaching of God's Word, as clear as it is, has sometimes been doubted or denied by people. And, uh, they seem to have some plausible reasons for that, right? Because they can, they can cite certain verses that seem to indicate that God changes. Think, for example, of Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, where it says that the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. Now, someone might argue, well, yes, when God created man, it seemed like a good idea, but when man became so wicked, God changed his mind as if it were a bad idea. Or we have uh, such passages as First uh, Samuel chapter 15. Where the Lord spoke to Saul after, or spoke to Samuel after Saul had shown his rebellion against the Lord and his disregard for his word saying, I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. I greatly regret that I have set up Saul as king. And we might think, well, isn't that pretty clear that God kind of changed his mind about setting up Saul as king. He regretted his decision. It's very interesting that that in this very same chapter, in uh Samuel's word to uh, Saul, Samuel said, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also, the strength of Israel will not lie nor relent, for he is not a man that he should relent. Now, if we don't think hard and seriously about these passages, we will either conclude that God changes and we'll choose one verse, or we'll conclude that he doesn't change and we'll select another verse and we won't work at trying to fit them together as if we accept the idea that the Bible just contradicts itself. But of course that is completely unacceptable. And so we have to understand these passages that that seem to indicate God uh changing in a way that reflects the character of god's self revelation, as Matthew Henry says, God often speaks after the manner of men, in other words, there are expressions that we can uh relate to or connect with because uh they they reflect something that uh, uh kind of resonates with our with our sense of things, and sometimes that's been uh, called anthropopathisms. Last time I mentioned the fact that the Bible speaks as if God had arms and hands and a mouth and lips and tongue. God doesn't. God is spirit. But the Bible speaks with anthropomorphism, as if God had the form of a man, though he doesn't. And sometimes the Bible speaks as if God had the passions of, of people, though he doesn't. But God truly reveals himself so that we might know him in the fullness of his being by such awfulness of man made in the image of God, endowed with such gifts and given such a high calling, should so sin against God. And people ought to be moved and affected with grief at the thought. But that doesn't mean that God himself changes. Sometimes he feels good, sometimes he feels bad. He has good days and bad days. Sometimes he's happy, sometimes he's sad. Well, that would be a great imperfection in God, wouldn't it? And we need to maintain this against current ideas in the professing church. You know, one idea in popular form is the notion that uh, God in the Old Testament is, is somehow quite different than God in the New Testament. Because in the Old Testament, what do we have? We have these stories of the the destruction of the whole world by a flood. We have the stories of God raining fire from heaven to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. We have the story of God uh, requiring the annihilation of all the Canaanites. And so God appears to be a very severe God. Look at some of the, the, the laws and the, the punishments that God prescribed for various sins in the Old Testament. People facing a death penalty for gathering sticks on the Sabbath. But the New Testament reveals God as a father, a God of love and mercy and, and kindness. Now, that would suggest that God changes. That would be a grave mistake. It is true, thankfully, that there is uh, an advance in the New Testament in the revelation of God's love, the way of his love revealed in Jesus Christ. There is a great advance in the New Testament with respect to the close relationship that each each individual child of God has with him as their heavenly father. The wonder of adoption in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yes, these are great advances in God's revelation of his grace. But they don't subtract or they don't take anything away from the revelation of God in the Old Testament as if God changed. In fact, actually, it could be argued that it's really in the New Testament that we have the most profound, awful revelations of the justice of God. Read the book of Revelation. Remember that the Lord Jesus Christ is going to destroy the whole world at his coming with fire. Remember that the supreme revelation of God's justice is not in the destruction of the Canaanites. It's in the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, where God maintained his holiness and his righteous wrath against sin by punishing his own son, who willingly took upon himself our guilt, so that God might be just, without compromise, without changing, and yet be the justifier of those who believe in Jesus. So we ought never to think that uh, there is some difference between the Old and the New Testament in its revelation concerning God. God does not change. And we need the whole Bible to know God fully as he has revealed himself. The whole Bible needs to be taught, needs to be preached, it needs to be read. And that includes our own personal and and, uh, family reading of scripture. We ought not to limit it to passages that are uh, familiar or easy for children, but we ought to read through the whole scriptures and recognize that the greatest need that we have is that God would give us a heart to know him more and more. All that God has revealed of himself. That includes his unchanging character. Secondly, God does not grow. God does not uh, learn. That's... uh, uh, the The teaching of what has been called process theology, the idea that God himself somehow uh grows in his knowledge as he lives and as he suffers along with the with the human race, but again that's a modern idea which strikes at the very perfection of God. His perfection means that he cannot improve or suffer any loss that would mean that uh he has uh, Uh, He is on the way to a greater perfection from imperfection in one way or another because liability to any loss is a creaturely imperfection. Again, this is revealed in scripture and it's revealed in the way of worship and praise and God's words to his people in the circumstances of their lives In Psalm 135, we read, Your name, O Lord, endures forever. And you know that in Scripture, the name of God is shorthand for all that God is as he reveals himself. Your fame, O Lord, throughout all generations. God does not change in any way. And then thirdly, and finally, God does not change in his saving purposes and grace. Therefore, You sons of Jacob are not consumed. You sons of Jacob. Now, the name Jacob reminds us, of course, of the ancestor of uh, Israel, that man Jacob, that uh, man of faith, but a man whose weaknesses are plain to see. God's favor towards him was sovereign. was according to God's will and purpose, and it was unchangeable first chapter of this book speaks of that, where we read, Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. In the Canons of Dort, we confess uh, the doctrine of God's election, God's choice of us to eternal life from before the foundation of the world. And it's described as an eternal decision, but it's also described as an unchangeable decision. Election, in Article 7, or choosing, is God's unchangeable purpose. By which he did the following. Before the foundation of the world by sheer grace, according to the free good pleasure of his will, he chose in Christ to salvation a definite number of particular people out of the entire human race, which had fallen by its own fault from its original innocence into sin and ruin. Those chosen were neither better nor more deserving than the others, but lay with them in the common misery. He did this in Christ, whom he also appointed from eternity to be the mediator, the head of those chosen, and the foundation of their salvation. And so he decided to give the chosen ones to Christ to be saved, and to call and draw them effectively into Christ's fellowship through his word and spirit. In other words... He decided to grant them true faith in Christ, to justify them, to sanctify them, and finally, after powerfully preserving them in the fellowship of his Son, to glorify them. And it's all to the praise of his glorious grace. And as if that were not enough, there is a special, specific article on the unchangeable nature of God's election, article 11. Just as God himself is most wise, unchangeable, all knowing and almighty so the election made by him can neither be suspended nor altered revoked or annulled neither can his chosen ones be cast off nor their number reduced the foundation of god stands firm having this seal we read this morning from second tap uh, timothy chapter 2 the lord knows those who are his now, Jacob's descendants, they enjoyed God's favor for generations. Even they uh experienced God's gracious, corrective discipline. In the book of Malachi, we find them still testing, still provoking the Lord. And the fact is that they deserve to be consumed. But the Lord doesn't change. And his purpose to save his chosen ones cannot be frustrated. The gifts and calling of God, actually in my uh, version of the bible uh, there's a reference to romans 11 verse 29 which says that the gifts and calling of god uh, are irrevocable god does not change in his saving grace and purpose and brothers and sisters that's indeed good news for sinners of course not to encourage them in their sin that same chapter we read this morning says that if we deny him he will deny us If we are faithless, he remains faithful. God will not deny himself. But what does this unchanging grace of God mean for us? It means that we ought to be both humbled and lifted up and encouraged by the fact that it is utterly owing to God's purpose and grace that we are spared the judgment that we deserve. To those who take refuge in Christ, God's unchanging grace provides a bedrock of comfort. Unchanging is the love of God from age to age the same, displayed to all who do his will and reverence his name. I, re- I quoted from Psalm 135. The next Psalm 136 uh, repeats this refrain, for his mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the God of gods, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endures forever. After every declaration of God's character and works, the refrain, His mercy endures forever. Because God wants that glorious truth to be deeply embedded in the hearts and minds of His people. That they might trust in Him. That they might cling to Him. God doesn't change. But the good news uh, for this, not only for God's people, but for those who may not yet know themselves as God's people, is that sinners can change, and their relationship to God can change. That's what grace does. Remember what uh, was said of uh, the Corinthians in uh 1 Corinthians chapter 6, where they are warned against uh, living in sin. Uh, it says, uh, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you but you are washed, you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. God's way of grace never changes. That way of grace is through the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, the Savior who is himself, as we read from Hebrews 13, the same yesterday, today, and forever. And the unchanging grace of God means that there is never any deficiency in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. There is never any inadequacy that should lead sinners to question or doubt whether Jesus Christ is able to save them. There is no deficiency in the gospel invitations and calls to lead sinners to think that Christ is unwilling to save them because whoever comes to this gracious Lord Jesus for salvation and life will be received by him. And that comes unto me, I will in no wise cast out. The Lord Jesus has never revoked uh, such a an expansive, gracious invitation God were to deny himself if he were to refuse any sinner who comes to him in the way that he is appointed through the Lord Jesus Christ. Early, I I made reference to Psalm 102, which says, Your years are through all generations of old. You laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will endure. Yes, they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will change them, and they will be changed. But you are the same, and your years will have no end. And we read this majestic description of God. And yes, we properly think of our great triune God. In his unchanging character and power. But brothers and sisters, when we read these verses, we ought also to think, even specifically to think of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because if you turn to the first chapter of the book of Hebrews, this passage is quoted with reference to the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the one whose years endure throughout all generation. He is the one who will fold up the heavens as a garment. He is the one revealed there and in that connection as we trust in this savior also we take great comfort in the conclusion to this psalm where it says the children of your servants will continue and their descendants will be established before you god's saving purpose from generation to generation will never fail and we cling to those promises of a covenant keeping god we continue to plead his saving mercy for ourselves, for our children, for our grandchildren. We know that his purpose will not fail. Hold fast, then, to an unchanging God. Amen.